All right, I'm going to be talking about occupational factors. And uh, these are sometimes considered a, a sort of a subcategory of psychosocial factors. We don't normally think of workplace issues as something that is uh, something we frequently do in physical therapy, but I'm sure you hear a lot about these problems from your clients. And uh, what we're going to try to uh, present to you is the possibility that maybe these kinds of problems could be dealt with in a more routine and systematic way in the context of physical therapy. Uh, you're probably wondering why an insurance guy is up here telling you how to expand your services rather than how to confine them. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about the place where I work. Um, this is the Liberty Mutual Research Institute for Safety. It's been around for more than 50 years and Liberty Mutual has graciously funded this sort of independent um, non-proprietary research center to study occupational health and safety issues and their kind of historical claim to fame is doing things like designing some of the early prototypes for seat belts, uh, establishing industrial guidelines for manual materials handling and things like that. And uh, more recently, in the last 10 years or so, we've been studying the issue of return to work, um, specifically after workplace injuries. So we're, we're, about, uh, we're located in Hopkinton, Massachusetts, which is about 30 minutes outside of Boston. And if you can find us between the snowbanks, you're welcome to come at any time and have a tour of the Institute. If you just look at our webpage, you can find that information out. A lot of what I'll be presenting here is the results of a conference uh, that we call a think tank that Chris Main organized back in 2007. And I just wanted to acknowledge that the, my compatriots on the Blue Flags uh, subcommittee were uh, Daniel Vandervent from the Netherlands, uh, Stephen Linton, uh, Chris Main, and Patrick Loisel uh, from Canada. I want to start off by saying, as, as Julie mentioned, we used to say that 90% uh, of people get, get better very quickly from a, an onset, acute onset of low back pain. We've uh, sort of revised that to be a little less optimistic now. And this is the kind of result we see for return to work in cases of acute work-related low back pain as an example. After a month, uh, about half the people are, are really back to their normal lives and not really have any, any particular complaints. But the remaining half of the people are having still some sort of trouble doing their jobs. Either they're back to work full duty, but they really are still struggling with some re uh, persistent and recurring pain problems. They're actually on modified duty status or they haven't been able to return to work at all. So, uh, you know, in, in physical therapy, you're probably, you're not seeing those people who are back to work and, and able to resume their normal lives very quickly. You're probably seeing most of the people on the left-hand side of this pie chart. But returning to work isn't easy after you've had an acute onset of low back pain. And this is a very uh, great interest to employers, mostly because it's a big cost issue for them. One of the things that some researchers at our institute do every couple years is look at what are the costs to industry uh, for various types of, of uh, uh, accidents that occur in the workplace. And you can see that overexertion is you know, by far the most expensive type of problem, and about two-thirds of these are back pain cases. So for the average employer, at least a, um, a third of their workers' comp costs are really coming from low back pain. So th this is something that catches their interest a lot, and they're very interested in trying to do a better job with return to work in cases of low back pain. A couple years ago, there was a, a, a nice um, a systematic review done by uh, Renee Louise uh, Franch and some of her colleagues at the Institute for Work and Health trying to look at workplace interventions. So these are the kind of things that are done in the work site or, or related to the work site that seem to be helpful in facilitating return to work after low back pain. 
So if you just look down the, the left-hand column here, you can see the kinds of things that there seems to be some good evidence that uh, early contact with an injured worker from a work site, uh, an early offer of accommodation, and some of these other things are very helpful. And they've actually uh, generated um, a nice kind of uh, useful brochure of information that's available to employers through their website about best practices for trying to facilitate return to work. So you can kind of look down this list. So these are the kinds of messages that, that industry hears right now about facilitating return to work. Uh, having a demonstrated commitment to health and safety, making routine offers of modified duty, um, trying to people, return people to work without disadvantaging their peers and coworkers, having supervisors trained in this kind of area, uh, being, having early and considerate and regular contact with injured workers, designating somebody within the workplace to coordinate return to work efforts, and uh, communicating with providers as much as, as possible. So these are the kind of principles that have been used in the workplace. And some of these may also pertain to the kinds of things we do in the clinic as well. So back in 2007, when our, our group got together and tried to look at uh, these occupational factors, one thing that we became very aware of is that, that there were many studies, and many of the studies used very different variables. And it was really hard uh, as a practitioner to draw from this research any useful kind of uh, advice. So what, that's what we tried to do. Uh, at the time, there were five recent reviews of um, occupational factors that influenced uh, back disability. You can see that each one of them had a different number of studies included depending on their inclusion criteria. But the overall conclusion of all of these reviews was that occupational factors, both physical and psychological, impacted return to, wor return to work rates. Um, we've, you've heard a lot already about different kinds of screening questionnaires. Um, we, when we looked at the literature on how people collect this information, the only thing I want to say is that it's usually a screening questionnaire, some sort of interview that you do with the patient, or it could be something you actually do in the workplace. So you actually go and try to observe somebody uh, trying to do their work. And you also see a number of job domains that are included, uh, physical demands, psychological demands, social managerial factors, and workplace perceptions and beliefs. And these are sort of the blue flags, black flags that Chris has mentioned earlier. So what we tried to do was draw from this literature, what are the things that we really want clinicians to know about occupational factors? What are the kinds of questions they might ask uh, a patient? What are the specific areas that are probably have the most evidence base to work from? So we call these the big seven factors. So here they are. Um, the first one is heavy physical demands. So if a job sounds like it's physically demanding or if a person tells you that their job is physically demanding, that's an indication that this is going to be a more difficult case in terms of return to work. Uh, it's usually things like bending, lifting, pushing, pulling. And, and the important thing to note here is that if, from the literature, if you actually went and measured the physical demands of the person's work, that's not always such a good predictor of return to work. But if you ask the person to self-report the physical demands, that is. So in this case, it's better to get this information directly from the horse's mouth rather than to actually go do some sort of um, objective measurement of their actual demands. And there's probably a number of reasons for that. Uh, the second one is the inability to modify work. So some people just have the kinds of jobs where there is not a lot of flexibility or leeway. They may have a public safety concern connected with their job. It may be that they're sitting, at, for example, as a school bus driver, you can't really go anywhere other than sit in your, in your chair and drive. Uh, and if you can't do your job right, they may have some real public safety concerns about that. So these are the kinds of jobs that are often very problematic for return to work with low back pain. 
Uh, also patients who just report a lack of workplace support. So it might be somebody who works in a very isolated work setting, which is normally not a problem. Maybe they enjoy working alone, but in the, in the context of a low back pain episode, this could be a real complication. Uh, it could be that they're a new employee. It could be that they just don't get along with people in the work site. They're, they're not expecting people to really help them out of this problem. And just to show you some, some real data uh, from some uh, data that we've collected, uh, for example, job tenure seems to be a very consistent issue in return to work. So um, being, a new, being new on the job is a real risk factor for uh, 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 reduced ability to return to work. And being on the job for a long time, you tend to do better. And that's even with older workers. So it's better to be an older worker returning with low back pain than to be a new worker. Uh, also, workers who, who take more time to actually report the problem to their employer seem to do more poorly, which is a little bit surprising if you think that more severe kinds of accidents and injuries would tend to be reported earlier. But actually, we see the, the people who have taken longer to report the problem to their employer have done more poorly in terms of return to work. So this is probably related to uh, their perception that, that, that this is not going to be well received by their employer and they're not going to get a whole lot of help with this problem. So they, they, they don't report it for a while. So the fourth one is, is job stress. And uh, the kinds of jobs or the kinds of variables that we see in the literature here are uh, the kinds of jobs where you have to really be on your very best at every moment in your job, where there's very uh, strict requirements in terms of productivity, where it's very competitive. And if you're not uh, doing 100%, if you're, if you're somehow not able to, to, to give your all, that you're not going to do a good job. And it's going to be really noticed or very embarrassing for you to do. Um, again, in, in the data that we collect with acute work-related cases of low back pain, people who say their jobs are always stressful uh, have uh, about a 67% return to work rate within three months, and people who say that it's really stressful, it's more like 80%. So you can see that these are measurable differences just from, just from asking one question. Uh, another issue that's a little different than job stress but comes out in the literature is job dissatisfaction. So people who have kind of boring, monotonous work where they're just not too excited about their job, um, where it's, there's nothing to sort of reinforce them to want to be in the workplace, uh, this is a problem as well. And then one that's uh, interesting is, is poor expectations for return to work. So if, if, a, if a patient says, well, there's just no way I'm going to be able to go back to work, uh, they're probably right, and, and it's not clear exactly why that is the case, whether it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy or whether they're actually making an accurate read of the situation and the circumstances that they're in. But this is a very strong predictor, and probably the very best question to predict outcome in terms of low back pain return to work. So if you only have time for one question for your patients, the one to ask is, do you think you'll be able to go back to work soon? And that's probably going to tell you a lot more than any, any more uh, uh, long, uh, lengthy assessments that you can do. So if you're not sure whether you'll be able to return to work within a month, you, you, you have a lot of trouble, more trouble getting there. And if you say, I'll definitely be able to return to work, you have an over 90% return to work rate. So that's the person you don't need to worry about as much. The last one is fear of re-injury, and uh, for a lot of workers, there may be a, a, several specific tasks involved in their job that they're very afraid to do because they're very certain that if they do that again, they're, un, they're, they're positively going to have an, uh, an inc increase in pain, that they're going to have another whole onset of pain, and this is of great concern to them. So finding out what that particular, those particular tasks are and trying to find a way that you can overcome that fear is, uh, is an important issue.
And a lot of times people in this area also, they just feel like they need to be 100% before they return to work. So having any pain in doing their job is, is an impossibility for them. So how often do you see these kinds of things? If you just look at population-based estimates from uh, people with reporting acute work-related low back pain, you know, 30% of them have been on the job for less than a year, 40% report physical job demands exceeding eight out of 10, uh, 40% or have uh, no known modified duty options in their workplace. So you can see that uh, these are quite common problems that, that people report. And you know, it's when you have all of these things on your plate that you, this is probably a, a really difficult case. The recommendation of the think tank for primary care physicians or attending physicians was to try to give patients some sort of screening questionnaire. Uh, for those people who screen high, try to, to, to talk with them, give them some reassurance and assess the need to, to do a little bit more. And if you're not getting anywhere at that point, really look into the possibility of trying to actually go to the work site or talk with someone in the work site about the problem. All right, now's where I need to have stick my neck out a little bit and try to make some very specific recommendations to you as providers. And I need to do this very humbly because I'm not a physical therapist and I don't know all of the ins and outs of your work. So hopefully we'll, this will uh, feed some discussion uh, later. But uh, there are some things that, that I think about physical therapy and that is that you really get to observe people doing work. Uh, in, in, in the time that you spend with them, and I think that's very important. You also see them over repeated visits, typically, so you get a chance to see how they change over time. And uh, physical therapists seem to be very good at establishing rapport and really being engaged with people because they have to kind of motivate them to exercise. So, um, you know, these are things that you don't see in a lot of other clinical settings, for example, with primary care physicians. So you do have an opportunity to really kind of find out a little bit more about some of these problems, including workplace issues. So I've sort of created a hypothetical six-session uh, um, patient here, and uh, what you might do routinely with, with people in, in the uh, context of workplace factors, and how, how can you understand those a little bit better. So maybe at the first session, you could just ask the person a couple very vague questions about their work and get a sense from, about their general orientation to working life. So tell me about your work, how long have you been there, what's it like to do that kind of work, and, and, and how, how did your workplace respond to your injury? And you, you, know, you might hear a whole lot just by asking those kinds of questions. It will give you an idea of whether this is a, something you want to spend a little bit more time on with this person. Because return to work is a, you know, it's an important outcome measure for, for physical therapists as, as well as for employers. The second session, maybe the thing to do would be to administer a self-report questionnaire of physical job demands. So this kind of um, allows you to understand what the maybe in particular job tasks that are problematic for this person are, what kind of areas of physical demands are of greatest concern to this person, and, and, and you could learn a little bit about the nature of their job, which would, would probably help to, to further your rapport with this person as well. There are a lot of questionnaires like this. This is one that's um, uh, freely available because it was developed by the government, but it's a job requirements and physical demand scale, and it just asks people to indicate for each one of these different sorts of ergonomic uh, exposures, how, how many hours in the week do they, do they do that work. In session three, maybe take the results of that survey and uh, talk with them about what are the very most specific work-related challenges and functional concerns and how does that happen in the course of the day and, and the type of work that they do. So be trying to identify what tasks are most difficult to resume, um, how, what will be the reasons um, that, that some of these tasks might cause re-injury, what activities and postures are most painful, things like that. 
So this gives you a target. Um, and maybe one thing that could be used as a kind of a clinical rating system for yourself is to have a sort of a worksheet where people can sp list the four or five specific tasks that they are most concerned about and then monitor their perceived ability to do those things over time with the, the exercise and treatment that you're providing. Uh, in session four, uh, that you might want to try to understand their organizational context of where they work so you know at this point know something about the physical job demands and now you want to learn about you know, how, how, did, how is work managed in this workplace, is, it, is this a benevolent employer or not, how much flexibility do they have because that will really influence uh, their ability to return to work. And we're, and but my thought is that a lot of this discussion could happen in the course of uh, an exercise program that you're doing with someone. So uh, I may be wrong about that, but it seems this could be sort of usual discourse that you would have with a patient that wouldn't seem too out of place. Uh, I'm not going to go through this long list, but you know, job modification is the thing that industry really looks to to make to facilitate return to work. Um, I just want to make the point that. We, we tend to think of these as things you buy, like a new chair or changing a, a, a workstation, but in reality, you know, the large majority of, of job modifications are just employers' allowances to uh, provide someone some additional flexibility as they're returning to work. So they tend to be more administrative types of things than actual physical changes in the work environment. Uh, another thing that's really important in this area of job modification to know is that a lot of workers actually sort this out completely on their own using the available leeway or flexibility that they already had in their job. So they kind of negotiate this problem with their coworkers, with their peers, with their customers to make their life livable when they do return to work. And a lot of these things never make it into administrative or, or medical records at all. So people who are good problem solvers, they sort of go out and figure this problem out for themselves. Uh, and. Uh, in the, in the fifth session, you might actually try to brainstorm some possible job modifications with this person just to kind of give them the idea that, that uh, well, maybe there are some solutions out there if we look a little bit further. Uh, one of the things that we've done with some of the research at the Institute is to really look at what's the best way to engage uh, a worker about possible job modifications to, to help with their problem and, and we've used this six-step problem-solving process as a way to do that. So basically what you're trying to do is get this person on board to start thinking about what are the factors that influence my discomfort, what are the, what are the really problematic job tasks, um, what helps or hinders my ability to cope with those problems, and what are some possible solutions. Um, so it's a similar to the kinds of problem-solving strategies that are taught to people in executive training programs and things like that. So this is the kind of strategy you might use with a, one of your clients to try to get them thinking about their own, uh, how they're going to solve this problem, particularly if the pain recurs, which is quite common. And lastly, I wanted to mention that you know, as you sort of transfer this client back to maybe a treating physician, it is important to try to relay uh, information that you've learned in the case in the course of treatment. So, you know, one of the big problems is that you spend a lot of time with the the client, and now they're back with somebody else, and and all of that information that you've learned, all the things that you've tried to do to help them think about the workplace is kind of lost. So maybe a way to do this better is to make sure that something about the workplace is entered into it for a discharge note. If it's a serious problem, you probably would want to actually try to do this in a phone call if possible. I know there's some real uh, uh, problems getting uh, physicians on the phone and things like that, but uh, you know, a, a sample note might say that the job setting is blah, 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 primary job concerns are this, uh, the job modification efforts might focus on a certain thing. 
etc. Uh, just to give you a real specific examples, these are sort of adapted from a study that we did of, of uh, return to work case management. Uh, this is somebody who sounds like they really don't have much of, of, if any, workplace concerns. The client has 10 years of experience in their current job as a building superintendent and he reports substantial support from his employer and current supervisor for returning to work. No specific job tasks are a barrier for return to work at this time, but the client's concerned about keeping up with work demands while still experiencing symptoms. There may be some need to clarify employer expectations and timelines for resuming normal job responsibilities. So this kind of language in your discharge note might uh, inform who, the, the attending physician that this is probably not a big problem and this, we're probably gonna sail through with this, this guy. Uh, in contrast with that, here's the one with the, the sort of where there are a lot of problems. Uh, the client feels that his workplace has been unresponsive since the injury and that he's feeling blamed for the accident. He's reluctant to resume any work activities because he fears re-injury. His calls to his supervisor and fellow workers have not been returned. Communication between the client and his employer will need to be reestablished before the client can be engaged in discussions about specific job modifications. So this is alerting other people in the system to the, that something more needs to be done. It might not fall within uh, the, the scope of services that you provide, but at least you're, you're alerting people that this is a, a more serious problem that probably deserves some more intervention. So in conclusion, I just want to uh, summarize that there's growing prospective research evidence to support a number of workplace factors that impact back disability. Uh, there's growing research evidence to sort of support the efficacy of workplace interventions. And as clinicians, you know, we should try to think about how we can connect with that kind of thinking as well. Uh, physical therapists may have opportunities to identify and address the workplace concerns of clients in, through the normal course of treatment. And, uh, but there are, remain some issues of practicality and feasibility, which I recognize, and uh, hopefully we can have more discussion about that. So that's it for me. Thank you very much.